to the 17th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, what we are seeing now is a relatively consistent level of positive tests for the virus, around 60,000 per day. And we're currently experiencing the expected higher number of hospitalizations and deaths than in the past, due to the time delay between transmission and serious disease. As strange as that sounds, the relatively consistent number has a positive aspect. Without intervention, it would be rising exponentially. The seemingly constant number of new cases per day implies that the effective R0 is approaching one, meaning that each infected individual gives it to one not two or three other people. Although with the slight increase we've seen from 50,000 to 60,000 and even occasionally 70,000, we're not quite there yet. However, success is not that far away. Reducing it back to the numbers of the past would not be that hard if people more closely follow the recommended guidelines around masks, six-foot distancing, and hand-washing. Having said that, An R0 of 1 means that everything remains constant. The number of deaths will continue at 500 to 1,000 per day. With five months left in the year, that's somewhere between 75,000 and 150,000 more people dying, or in total, about 250,000 people will have died from the coronavirus by the end of 2020 and the start of 2021. There's a huge difference between having flattened the curve and turned it around towards zero. And there's nothing to indicate that that number will drop that far down short of prolonged total closure of our nation with mandatory adherence. And I can't imagine that is what elected officials would decide to do, particularly with voting happening in just over three months. So we can expect that we will see the continued number of cases, the continued number of hospitalizations and deaths, and it shouldn't surprise anyone when it occurs. On the other hand, a surprise finding came from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, last week. Its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report included the results of a multi-state telephone survey of symptomatic adults who tested positive for this coronavirus. One third of the participants in the study 
had not regained their normal state of wellness when interviewed two to three weeks after the positive test. The most common symptoms were fatigue in 71%, cough in 61%, and headache in 61%. Not only did close to half of the people over the age of 50 continue to have symptoms at that point, but also 26% of patients aged 18 to 34. Given how mild many of these cases were, people didn't expect these lingering problems in this particular age group. As we've said on this show, this virus is predictable and consistent. We're just discovering week by week how unusual and strange it also seems to be. Persistence of symptoms in people who recover is unusual with other coronaviruses, but not this one. Marked predilection for elderly who have chronic diseases to die, but for young children to be totally spared seems unique. A 40% or even higher percentage of people who are asymptomatic is unheard of from a viral infection that has already killed almost 150,000 people. I'm sure Jeremy will find new and more expanded, seemingly inexplicable aspects of COVID-19 in the weeks and months to come. Rabbi, people keep asking us about getting reaffected and how long immunity lasts. What are the latest findings? The data is confusing because of the difficulties we're experiencing with the tests themselves. When our bodies are confronted by a new virus, our immune system responds by first making IgM, which is one type of immunoglobulin, and that happens around one week after becoming ill, and IgG, a second and longer lasting type, sometime between two and four weeks. This immune response not only counteracts the current infection, but it also primes the body to leap into action almost immediately the next time the individual is exposed to the same pathogen. In past shows, we talked about the test for the virus itself, which is the nasal or oral swab. It is used to answer the question, am I sick at this moment? After recovery, there were reports of people testing positive, potentially meaning they could have been reinfected. But the current interpretation is that's not what happened. Most likely what the test is finding are residual, non-infectious parts of the virus still circulating, but unable to make the individual sick. Now we have a different issue. These antibody tests analyze someone's blood to answer two questions. Was I sick in the past? And am I protected today? The concern is that if the antibodies disappear, people could become just as ill in the future after they've recovered from COVID-19 as before. Some initial reports noted that immunoglobulin levels seem to disappear in people soon after the disease. The current thinking, however, is that protection remains. The problem stems from the tests themselves. Most are inaccurate and others inconsistent. Of the 14 most commonly used ones, only three were found to be consistently accurate. And although these correctly identified reduced antibody levels, that's very different than no immunity. 
in people with diminished antibody levels, the immune system seems to be just laying low until a virus arrives. According to Dr. Michael Minna, an immunologist at Harvard, quote, the virus will never even have a chance the second time around. Putting the pieces together, based on what we know today, it seems very unlikely that once recovered, someone will get reinfected. Another listener wanted to know if coronavirus was impacting the birth rate. What have you heard? Jeremy, it's interesting because it definitely is impacting the birth rate, although in both directions simultaneously. On one hand, sheltered home is raising pregnancies. It's having the biggest net impact in poorer countries, particularly those with limited access to birth control. On the other hand, the economic fears of people in the United States appears to be driving down the number of couples choosing to have a child. This is a common experience in recessions and depressions from the past. And on top of that, the difficulty that currently exists in getting childcare and potential parents seem to be taking a wait and see attitude before trying to have a child. However, for those couples who do decide to move forward, there's some good news from a recently published Lancet study involving 120 babies born to mothers with the coronavirus. None of them came down with the infection, whether they were exposed during pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, or just daily skin-to-skin contact. Although we're in the midst of summer, people are becoming concerned about what will happen when flu season strikes. Uh, What do we know so far? As you point out, having both coronavirus and the flu at the same time would be dramatically worse than either alone. The good news is that the combination may be less likely than we feared. As we said on this show, unlike the coronavirus, the flu is heat sensitive. As such, it begins in the lower half of South America in June, which is their winter, and then six months later during their summer, when our incidence rises in late December and early January. As such, we should now be at the peak of the flu in countries like Chile. Instead, only 1,134 cases have been recorded this year, compared to 20,949 during the same period a year ago. The reason is that the same precautions to wear a mask keep six feet apart and wash your hands frequently, avoids the spread of the influenza virus as it does with the coronavirus. If the data hold up and if they're replicated in other nations, this would be very encouraging. Remember, about 40,000 individuals die each year in the United States from the flu virus, including a small number of children. Let me ask you to shift from your Stanford Medical School hat to your Stanford Business School hat and focus on some of the economic issues today. Uh, Let's begin with the next coronavirus relief package. Uh, Where are we with that? Jeremy, listeners may remember we covered in great detail the previous $2 trillion stimulus package that included an added $600 per week for those on unemployment when the bill was passed and signed into law. These provisions will expire later this month, but due to the timing of sending out the checks, 
Avoiding a gap in payment will require that a bill be passed sooner than the official terminus of the added benefit, which is July 31st. Overall, we can expect an economic package to come from Congress and be signed by the president sometime soon. It's likely to include another one-time stimulus payment analogous to the $1,200 distributed last time. And it will include dollars for schools, particularly those that reopen, to offset some of the added costs. But like watching sausage get made, the process of negotiating among the Democratic-controlled House that has already passed a $3 trillion plan, the president who wants a reduction in payroll taxes, and the Republican-controlled Senate that's looking for a price tag around $1 trillion, it's likely to be contentious and very unappealing. A major sticking point will be how much above the usual unemployment dollars to set the new payments going forward. As businesses reopen and jobs become available, there seems to be less interest among people in coming back to work than some elected officials believe appropriate. They worried about the disincentive people would have to go back to work when the bill was first passed if the dollars they received through unemployment was as great as their previous salary, and that sentiment appears to have grown we're recording this on Monday morning. The Senate will be publishing its economic plan later today, and then the intense negotiations will occur between the House, the Senate, and the executive branch tonight, tomorrow, with hopefully passage of legislation sometime this week. Robbie, we talked last week about how there would be both winners and losers uh, coming out of this coronavirus pandemic. Listeners wanted more details. Can you provide them? We've seen the biggest reshuffling of the fates of companies during the past half year than at any time since the 2008 recession. We're seeing accelerating digitalization and decarbonization. Of the 1,000 companies with the highest market cap, that's the total value of their stock, those in IT and telecommunications have increased dramatically, while those in traditional energy have also decreased significantly. Tesla is now as big as Toyota. NVIDIA that makes the graphics processing units for gaming and professional markets is as large as Intel. Netflix has become as valuable as Disney, and PayPal is now worth as much as Bank of America. In the healthcare sphere, the insurance have been the big winners, with United Health having just reported its best quarter in history, and yet at the same time, hospitals and doctors have had one of their worst. Airlines continue to struggle, as do hotels and car rental companies, and cruise ships will be unable to leave port at least until September. How we spend our time, where we go, and what we do with our leisure will be different from last year. And the longer the pandemic lasts, the higher the probability that these changes will be permanent.
how is the planning coming for the opening of schools this September? I have friends who are very firmly on both sides of the fence on this one. Some are saying that they're not comfortable with schools opening at all due to their children's, you know, lack of understanding of hygiene. Um, and others that are saying that the isolation from peers and a lack of a classroom setting is much more of a detriment than the risk of their child getting a virus that they will almost certainly not die or get severely ill from. What are your thoughts? The confusion you are describing is the current state of how our nation is thinking about the opening of schools in the fall. The CDC released its guidelines this week on safe school reopening. There was not much in them different than we had talked about on previous shows, including masks, six-foot distancing, and hand-washing. It concluded, however, that schools should be reopened due to the low risk of COVID-19 in children. It counseled against testing of children by school personnel. But then it added that schools should consider staying closed or even closing down once they open if there's excessive disease in the community. What seemed like clear guidelines, Jeremy, suddenly became blurry again. The report didn't discuss risks to teachers or other school personnel. It cautioned that parents should keep children home with symptoms, but it didn't address the issue of notifying other families, except to encourage collaboration with local health officials. My sense is this is just another example of our nation's inability to acknowledge the expected consequences and be clear why a particular path is the lesser of two bad choices rather than there being a safe one. By that, I mean that even with a relatively low incidence of infection in a community, it is inevitable that kids will become ill and bring the virus to school and spread it to classmates. And there is harm when children don't attend classes can't access the food provided in the cafeteria and fail to engage with peers during key psychological development periods that harm will ensue. It's true that the virus will be spread and some adults, teachers, staff, or family members will become very ill and possibly die. Like everyone, I wish there was an option with no risk and no danger, but there's not. That's the truth. And when the inevitable happens, no one should be surprised or overreact one way or the other. But I predict they will. Jeremy, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, you often provide the perspective of the patient. As I read studies like the one showing long-term symptoms, even in young people, even as a physician, I'm baffled what it all means. How are you and the people you know doing during this time of uncertainty? Robbie, if I'm being honest, I am much less freaked out than a lot of the people I know about the virus. Um, I actually was exposed to someone who was uh, confirmed positive a couple weeks ago, and I had to do the 
14 day quarantine. I got the very unpleasant nasal swab and, you know, my results came back negative. Uh, I know a handful of people that have gotten it so far and they've all said that the, you know, the symptoms haven't been any worse than a regular flu, you know, chills, body aches, you know, et cetera. Um, I know of one young person that has had to have been hospitalized. Um, and I know of one person that has had long-term symptoms I know some people who are very concerned about it and some people who aren't worried in the slightest. Uh, at first, when we didn't know anything, if I'm being honest, I was pretty freaked out. Um, but now I kind of came to the understanding that, you know, this is basic mathematics and I'm probably not going to be hospitalized and I'm probably not going to die. It's not to say it's impossible, but I'm not in a high risk group. I mean, heck, people die from the flu and get hospitalized from the flu. I was actually hospitalized with the flu a few years ago. Um, if a proven safe and effective vaccine is as far off as we have discussed before, I think we have to come to the understanding and, and acceptance that most of us are probably going to be exposed, you know, to multiple people that have it. And we'll probably each have to quarantine a couple of times in case we have it. Um, and a lot of us will probably get it. Does that suck? Yes, absolutely. It sucks. Um, but to be honest, um, I see so many layoffs and businesses closing and people's entire livelihoods being ruined from the economic shutdown um, that this is affecting many, many more of the people I know in a negative way. Um, I'm much more concerned about the economic impact than I am the virus. Granted, I'm not a healthcare professional, but at this point, my thought process is for everyone to be responsible, wash their hands and isolate, you know, the most at risk, but not not destroy the economy over it. In follow-up, I heard this week from a friend who was panicked that her son's high school friends are gathering in groups without masks. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't want to isolate him, but she's afraid of his getting COVID-19 and transmitting the virus to other family members. How would you counsel her? Well, Robbie, as funny as this sounds, I kind of think of this like a high school kid sneaking out and drinking at a party. Uh, parents cannot completely control what their kids do when they're out of their eyesight and rebelling against their parents. I mean, it's a big part of growing up. I would say this. Luckily for her, if he does get it, he will most likely be fine. Uh, if he lives in a home with someone who is severely increased risk, like an elderly grandmother or something like that, um, you know, maybe be strict and don't let him go out with his friends if you don't think you can trust him. I mean, I'm actively letting my kid go to daycare and he and his daycare friends are too young to understand hygiene or to be trusted wearing masks all day. And I'm fine with him going to daycare because I feel the risk of him not socializing with his peers for extended periods of time during this stage in his life that is so crucial to his development outweighs the risks of him getting sick with something that he'll almost certainly live through. That's my two cents. Robbie, uh, you know, on the talk of this economic shutdown in schools, uh, it makes me want to revisit something with you. When the economic shutdowns started, we were told it was to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed like they were in Northern Italy. Hospitals here were not overwhelmed. Uh, even the Navy hospital ship that went into New York Harbor that made national news uh, was barely even used. And all of the temporary hospitals that were built across the country are long since torn down. Now, 
we are hearing in the news about, you know, more economic shutdowns potentially on the way and, and hospitals in some places on the verge of being overwhelmed. And the crazy thing is, I have not seen anything about which hospitals are being overwhelmed. And I even see on social media from doctors and nurses who work at hospitals in the places that are supposed to be overwhelmed. And they say they're not being overwhelmed. In fact, even the White House press secretary said that for the hospitals that are close to full capacity, it's a lot of it's because, uh, you know, they've opened up elective surgeries and elective procedures again. And, you know, uh, I think she said around 10 percent or less of the hospital uh, was covid patients at the hospitals were covid patients at this time. Robbie, you're extremely well connected in healthcare. What are you hearing from people working at hospitals in these areas? Are they actually overwhelmed? And what's going on with another potential economic shutdown? Jeremy, there are many definitions of being overwhelmed. Without question, in Florida and Texas, there are hospitals that are running out of beds or reaching the limit for their staff. We have seen situations like New York City where very aggressive responses were implemented, which did avoid us overwhelming the facilities and having patients die unnecessarily. We're also seeing patients be afraid to come to the hospital for more routine emergencies. And I use that phrasing just implying problems different than the coronavirus but very severe ones, things like strokes or even major gastrointestinal or pulmonary problems. Hospitals can create more space. They can transform cafeterias into medical units, but you can reach your capacity in a variety of ways as I say, particularly around staffing. Part of the confusion is that we thought of this notion of being overwhelmed specific to availability of ventilators. It was a clear image of two patients on a single machine or someone dying in the hallway or doctors having to pick whose life to save Fortunately, that's no longer a major issue. Doctors have found better ways to treat patients who would have been intubated in the past, and now they treat them by what's called proning them, keeping them on their stomachs face down rather than their backs, and relying on high-flow oxygen for longer than they usually would have before inserting a breathing tube. But that doesn't mean that they're not reaching capacity. The challenge is that doctors and nurses are getting exhausted. And when that happens, care becomes unsafe. When your hospital is at maximal capacity for prolonged periods, as is happening today in certain geographies of both Florida and Texas, Physicians and nurses exceed their physical, emotional, and psychological limits. The image of two people on the ventilator was vivid and clear. The problems today are less visible 
But I believe, Jeremy, they're still just as dangerous. All that is different is that we're seeing it in pockets of hotspots. We're not seeing it in every community or every state in the nation. In your Forbes columns, you've written extensively in the past about the powerful roles healthcare has on how people vote across the nation. How are you seeing the coronavirus impacting that this November? Jeremy, you are correct. In 2016 and 2018, healthcare was the number one issue for voters when surveyed about their concerns. In 2020, in the context of COVID-19, that focus on health will grow more intense. Most likely the coronavirus, along with the economic impacts and the social disorder that has resulted, will be the defining issue for voters when they cast their ballots in just under 100 days. I see the questions being asked as referencing three factors. One, overall leadership in addressing the healthcare threat and a judgment by voters whether the response of elected officials was appropriate, too aggressive, or overly slow. Second, questions about the economic programs that have been put in place, both for businesses and those workers who are employed. Once again, did we respond appropriately given the medical risks to individuals versus the nation's long-term economic and social threats? And finally, an evaluation by voters of how well society was informed and held together during this period of social isolation, individual anxiety, and racial concerns. Did people suffer too much? And did our country do enough? Voters look to elected officials to lead in times of war. And the minds of most Americans, this is a war. As such, voters will gaze beyond the traditional medical questions of coverage and clinical care. The coronavirus will pull the covers back on those in power and those wanting to replace them. The question voters are likely to ask is, when the next pandemic strikes, who do I want to be responsible for the health of the people in my state? Who do I want to be sitting in the halls of Congress? And who do I want to occupy the Oval Office? More on these issues coming later this fall. As a reminder to our listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.